Welcome to the second Cranky Flyer podcast. This week's episode is sponsored by Bread Air, the imaginary airline I made up when I was a kid. If you'd like to be a real sponsor, please email me at cf at crankyflyer.com. This week, I'm sitting with Scott Merowitz, who is in the dying days of his job as the airlines reporter for the Associated Press. He's moving on to become the digital platform storytelling editor for the AP's Global Business News Department. Good news for Scott, but bad news for us, so I had to grab him once before he took off for good. This week we're talking about the transatlantic market. Capacity is up, revenue is down, and I think this is probably just the beginning. Scott and I sat down to talk about what the low-cost carriers and the legacy carriers are going to do in this market, which is rapidly changing. I apologize for the sound quality. It's not great. But let's get started. All right, Scott. So you've been you've been digging around the data here uh, in the transatlantic world, and specifically UK, US in particular. This has been a, a trouble spot lately. So uh, I wonder if you can start just tell us what you're finding. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that we've been hearing a lot on the recent earnings calls is how much of a strain the excess capacity is and the competition from low-cost carriers across the Atlantic. When we look through the third quarter earnings, you know, year over year, when we look at uh, RevPAR, the revenue per available seat was down about 11% for American and United and about 10% uh, for Delta. And they attribute this to a lot of things. Part of it is just the competition from a lot of those low-cost carriers. You know, Norwegian Air Shuttle is a big one. Uh, they talk a little bit about Brexit and how the vote to leave the European Union is hurting business. but a big, big part of this is just capacity. So I dug a little bit deeper into this, and I started looking just on the UK, US routes. And if you look at the past three years, the number of seats available across the Atlantic are up 15%, which is sort of insane, if you ask me. So who, who's who's the culprit here of the 15% that, you know, how, how's that breaking down? Yeah, it's a little bit of everybody here, but some of the big, big spikes that we've been seeing are, um, <clears throat> excuse me, folks like Norwegian Air Shuttle, which added, uh, let's look at this, 620,000 seats into a market that's got about 24 million. So they're part of it. Other big culprits, you know, British Airways has added about as many seats. They've got their partnership with American Airlines, and American has nearly added a million seats to the market. Uh, Delta's ramped up a little bit, but Virgin Atlantic has taken a lot of uh, increase there, about 800,000 additional seats in the past three years. And remember, well, that counts as Delta anyway, so. Exactly, exactly. And they've been positioning flights together and, you know, overall that adds to this 15% increase in capacity and nobody's blinking here. And that's the issue. So here's, here's what's really interesting to me about this is you can talk about capacity. I'm sure some of it is larger gauge aircraft. Some of it is new routes like British Airways just launching New Orleans now and, you know, whatever it might be. But it seems to me this is the tip of the iceberg right now because we've got so much that's going to be coming. Norwegian is, is just the beginning of this effort at 
low-cost long haul. And, and by the way, absolutely no evidence that Norwegian is successful yet, as far as I can tell. I don't know if you've seen otherwise. Yeah, no one, no one knows that. But let's talk about JetBlue for a minute. JetBlue. Yeah. Once they get in, you know, some long-range 321s, could easily be doing transatlantic, especially from their hub in Boston. And that is going to just rip apart the market even more. If you want to compete, you know, let's talk 737 service on WoW through Iceland. Uh, some of the prices I've been seeing there are just insane. Uh, it, it's really funny. I'm, doing a trip to London for about $1,000 round trip that was booked on somewhat short notice, but I was looking at a few other dates, and I saw $400 out of New York on Norwegian, and this is a major cash cow route for airlines. You know, New York to Heathrow is major money. Uh, I think it's American and British Airways offer something like 16 daily departures. And at peak hours, it's as close as every half an hour. And business travelers love that, but if business travelers aren't traveling because of Brexit, and if leisure travelers have a $400 option or something even cheaper with a connection, they're going to have a lot of empty seats across the ocean. See, this is what's funny to me. So you talk about WOW with their Airbuses, not their 737s, by the way, but that's all right. (laughs) I know. I know you know better. That's why I'm pointing it out. Well, you know, if I didn't... If I didn't point it out, then you know that somebody would leave a comment right away. So I just want to make that clear. But to me, I'm actually pretty bearish on WOW. I don't think they have a future. And the reason is that the only reason they exist today is because they can connect people to Europe through Iceland using existing technology, right? They can use the narrow bodies, which you can't do to get all the way over the pond now. But as soon as you've got the 737 MAX and the 320 NEOs or 321 NEOs or 321 LR, uh, I guess is what you'd need for that, then you can start doing it without Iceland. You can start bypassing that. And so, you know, then JetBlue all of a sudden, right, they can connect people from any of the, I don't know how many cities they serve from Boston right now, but it's a ton. But they can do single-stop service, whereas, wow, you'd have to get to a gateway and then Iceland and then the continent and they're going to be left fighting for scraps on some of the smaller routes that just don't have enough demand. Yeah, I think everybody's going to be watching JetBlue on this market. And if JetBlue's proved anything with Mint, and a lot of people were very skeptical about Mint, is that, you know, a carrier such as them can actually do a really good premium cabin experience, and they might start stealing away share across the Atlantic. Then you have to start asking what happens in an airport like BWI, which, again, you could have range to reach a lot of places in Europe. Can they start stealing away some market share, and does some low-cost carrier also come in there with a, you know, three, a long-range 321? I don't know. You'd have to think Southwest would be thinking about it, right? I mean, that's that's the natural spot for them if they're going to try Europe. Um, yeah. Who knows if you know? Who knows where that sits on their radar? They, they've got a southern focus these days, I guess, Caribbean and Latin. But um, you know, once those maxes come in next year, then maybe that's what they start thinking about: is let's do Baltimore. And then, of course, you got everyone on the other side of the Atlantic. Maybe Ryanair, the the perennial threat, which never comes through on it. Um, you know, maybe if they can fly the uh 
the what is it the max 200 is that what they call it where yeah. they see people on the wing yeah <laughs> so you know maybe if they can find a way i don't know if that one will even have the range you with all those that, seats I on didn't it but say that. <laughs> yeah, I did say that. Hey, I think it's great. Look, I'm I'm actually in favor of standing room seating, probably not over the Atlantic, but, you know, if, if people can get it for cheap and they know what they're getting, then more power to them. Um, but Ryanair, you got to think, is, is going to keep watching this closely. Maybe at some point Norwegian realizes that 787 is an expensive and, you know, maybe not the best plane for this, and, and they focus more on the 737, like the Boston Cork route, which – May not be the uh, the perfect example of what you want to do, but still, uh, you know, th- with longer range, you can do a lot more, I guess. Um, okay, so basically, the <laughs> go ahead. I was just going to say, if we go that route, then the question remains for me: is all these legacy guys running wide bodies? What happens to the back of the plane? Does British Airways say, I can't run a 747 across the ocean, and say, all right, here we go, all business class, that's our market, and we're giving up on the economy customer? Just It doesn't really work all that well, right, because you need it to subsidize. I mean, it, look, the, the guys in the U.S., right? I mean, American has done a great job of competing in Spirit. Look at Dallas. Spirit's running away. Yep. So... You got to think that you can do it, but it puts more pressure on those premium cabin fares, I guess. But you still need all those seats in the back to help subsidize it, especially, you know, during the winter uh, holidays and during the summer when business class demand is less. But it probably does become more important, I would think. Then again, BA is, you know, leading the charge and trying to figure out what it can charge for in the back so that it is as undifferentiated as possible from a true low-cost carrier. So I'm not sure how that strategy is going to work out for them, but I like that they're trying. <laughs> so, yeah, so that is that is the question. What does this mean for everyone? I mean, I think what it means for customers is get ready. Fares are going to be cheap for a while here. Uh, but, you know, this, this brings me back to something which I find really uh, interesting is that when all these joint ventures were happening, all these tie-ups over the Atlantic, there were a lot of doomsday people out there saying, this will now be, you know, three airlines will control everything over the Atlantic and they'll charge more and less competition. It'll all be horrible. I am looking at the market today and with the new aircraft coming, and I'm thinking this is probably going to be the most competitive market we've had in the future. Yeah, I think once the narrow bodies come in across the Atlantic, the competition, particularly for the economy customer, is going to be really fierce, and uh, we should be seeing some great airfares out there. I think the real question is what's going to happen with those premium fares? You know, is the business traveler who's loyal to One World, Star, or Sky Team willing to switch over to a JetBlue or even a Ryanair for their hop across the pond? Well, you'd think for JetBlue, assuming there's a mint product, then that would be somewhat of a no-brainer, similar to JFK to L.A., where the product is fantastic, um, so it's a, it's a much easier sell, uh, particularly if you're Boston-based, where JetBlue can really serve you. But um, but yeah, what it, what does that mean for uh, you know if Ryanair's coming in? They've previously said, I believe it was uh, 
beds and blowjobs was what they were saying you needed to have up in, in business class, if I recall correctly. <laughs> a Michael O'Leary special right there. But, um, but you know, do they still think... I can't repeat. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But is, uh, you know, Ryanair has talked about this, I think, from a wide-body mindset previously, that you need to have a premium cabin. If you can do a narrow body, do you even need the premium cabin, uh, or do the economics change significantly enough? Well, it's one of the few markets left, particularly for U.S. companies, where the distance is long enough that most employees get to fly business class. I should note, I do not. Um, working for a nonprofit <laughs> organization, uh, I do not rank high enough to get that. But for many people in corporate America, you know that six plus hour flight is when you're able to, according to corporate travel policies, book that fare, and that is what helps a lot of the airlines with these crazy frequencies. There is no reason to have 16 daily flights between the New York area and London, um, except to make sure that that premium cabin is filled. Same thing when you start looking at D.C. or even Boston with some of the frequencies there. So where does that balance out when you start getting a Ryanair moving 200 people all in economy across the ocean? Yeah, I mean, corporations will have to look at this and say, well, because if premium cabin fares end up rising, if, if there's more pressure on that because coach fares are falling and the spread becomes greater, then, you know, companies are going to start looking at that probably. I guess we don't really know how this is going to turn out yet, but it's interesting to think about. And, and then the other piece as well is you have sort of a, a tale of two worlds here, right? The East Coast is going to be opened up with all this narrow body flying, but, you know, me out here on the West Coast, nothing's changing. Uh, I guess the this is where it becomes an opportunity for JetBlue to connect people from the West through Boston with a lower-cost product. Um, but, you know, does Ryanair need to go and, and partner with someone? Will they need the feed for these kind of things, or do they care? Uh, you know, interlining is something – that has worked out well for guys like JetBlue, Alaska, Virgin America. Uh, you know, it would be interesting to see if with a, a longer haul model if, if these guys start seeing that as necessary to penetrate deeper into the country. Yeah, I think you're going to see more of those Dreamliner routes heading out to you for the West Coast, those long, thin routes um, from anything that can't be served from the East Coast. Middle America, you know, maybe instead of connecting through Dallas, Chicago, Detroit, any of those hubs, you're going to go more East Coast on the your connections all on narrow bodies instead. Um, and then the East Coast cities could see much more narrow body service and that will do it. Uh, the other question is the airports and can they handle that capacity? You know, here in New York where I live, you've got such restrictions on the airports, although Newark got a bit of a reprieve, although I'm not sure how long that will last with its restrictions. Um, It's going to be gridlock. (laughs) We're all eagerly waiting this fall to see what's going on there, and that could be a whole other topic of conversation. But you add in 30, 40 transatlantic narrow bodies to an airport like Newark, uh, that's not going to happen. And even Boston, which does have ad capacity, probably can't take that type of demand. 
It's true. It, it does make me wonder, with all the opportunity there, you know, we talk about middle America, something like what British Airways is doing in New Orleans, maybe that's not what you consider middle America, but you know where I'm going here anyway, but, uh, you know, does that become more uh, attractive to the traditional carriers just because the low-cost carriers that are going to invade the East Coast, they're going to have to have a single stop to get you to New Orleans at least. So if they can fly that and make money on it, you know, they have a, a more of a product differentiation than they will on the East Coast where everyone's flying nonstop. It could mean more opportunity for flights that overfly the East Coast as they try to escape the uh, low-cost competition. And you're seeing airlines dabble again. You know, Raleigh is a great example, which uh, recently got a Paris flight again. Uh, now, that's, there's subsidies involved, but in many cases, some of these subsidized routes to Europe are actually proving themselves after a year or two, and people don't like connecting. And the more the technology changes, business travelers are going to enjoy those nonstop flights and possibly pay a premium for it. Well, if you guys could make your airports function in New York, maybe they wouldn't mind connecting so much. <laughs> but that's another topic. <laughs> that's we a whole different issue. We discussing that. Next time you're out on the East yeah, Coast, we can do a podcast live at one of the airports and discuss all the things we see from rats to pigeon droppings to doors that lead nowhere. See, it would be great. We could do a two-hour podcast while we're waiting in line to get into LaGuardia from the road. Uh, I, I've heard it better these days, but I've been flying out JFK. <laughs> Smart move. All right, Scott. Well, thank you very much. Good luck in the new role. We're going to miss you on the airline side, but I'm sure we're going to see you back here again sometime. Thanks so much, and I am going to miss it, but uh, I'll be keeping uh, close watch on what's going on. Thanks for listening to the second Cranky Flyer podcast. Told you the sound quality wasn't very good, and I apologize for that. I'll find a way to do it better going forward. Thanks to our sponsor, The Imaginary Bread Air. Again, if you'd like to sponsor for real, email me at cf at crankyflyer.com. Of course, you can send me any feedback to that address. You can also find me on Twitter at crankyflyer. And you can leave a comment on the blog at crankyflyer.com. We are now live on Google Play Music and iTunes. So you can go there, search for the Cranky Flyer podcast, and subscribe. See you next week. Thanks again for listening.